You are the glorious Christ. No greater sacrifice. You imagine that Jesus laid down his life for us. The perfect Son of God who had no sin took on sin so that we might be able to be redeemed and brought back into a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. What a great thought. What a great reminder. What great theology to be singing. Um, and I love that line where it says, he's coming back. Uh, he's not abandoned us. He's not left us on our, lo- our own. He is indeed coming back, and we are looking forward to when that happens. All right, well, we're going to begin a new series this morning. It's not going to be a terribly long series, at least that's not my plan, but you know how that goes sometimes. Um, we're, we're, looking at, we're going to be looking at some, uh, some preaching, and, and when Levi saw the title of the message this morning, he says, you're preaching on preaching? I said, you betcha, I'm preaching on preaching, okay? So that's what we're going to be starting a message on, uh, some great preaching. We all like to hear great preaching, right? We all like to be encouraged by the truth of God's word as it comes from the scriptures and delivered from a man of God who has been convicted and brought to a point where he knows what God would have him speak and bring forth. So we're going to take a look at some preaching that God used to impact generations of people for his honor and for his glory. Some of the messages or sermons or series, some of the series that we're going to talk about, some of these messages could be placed under the title or the category of long messages. You guys don't know anything about that, right? Um, Some of them, hey listen, I didn't keep my workshop people late during the, the recharge yes, over the weekend, okay? Um, some, other, some other workshop leaders were not as uh, time conscious. And, you know, speaking of time conscious, that's why we don't put an end on our service times, right? We have a start time, but we don't have an end time. So anyway, um, some of those sermons are going to be considered under what we call long sermons, Some of them might even be considered what you might call a new agey kind of sermons. Did you, by the way, notice the title of our message this morning? Pentecostal preaching. Now, please don't think that I'm trying to lead us down a path into something that is not biblical, okay? Um, We are going to be looking at some, some scriptures that come from a very instrumental book in the Bible. All of these sermons that we're going to look at are going to come from the same book. And last Sunday we preached about Stephen. It was our final character of faith. And Stephen, of course, is all, it's all accounted for us in the book of Acts, how Stephen became the first martyr of the church after preaching an amazing message. Okay, uh, so when I talk about Pentecostal preaching or New Age preaching, uh, that's all going to come from the book of Acts. You will find that these sermons are all preached during what some biblical scholars, at least the good ones, will tell you. This is a transitional period. And, and you know, here's a, list, a little bit of a information that you need to tuck away somewhere. When we talk about transitional things, like the book of Acts is where we're going to go, okay? The book of Acts is a transitional book. It's a very important book for the church, but since it's a transitional book, I remember being told by one of our Bible college profs that it is not a book to build doctrine on. Why not? 
Because doctrine needs to be founded in the sure-footedness, foundational, never-changing, never-ending truths that we know from, the, from our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So since Acts is transitional, which means it's kind of from one point to another, we don't really build doctrine on it. We learn from it. We apply things to our lives and to our church from it. But we don't build doctrine on what is something that is called transitional. So, um, as I said, our sermons are going to come from this great book, the book of Acts. So, if you will please meet me there in Acts chapter 2, in your copy of the scriptures, we will begin our sermon together this morning. Let me start with a question, though. When did the church start? Who knows the answer to that question? When did the church start? The day of Pentecost. Okay. So if there were a birth date or an anniversary that we celebrate the birth of the church, it would be the day of Pentecost. Now that doesn't really mean a lot to us who don't know the Jewish history and the Jewish culture, but the day of Pentecost was a feast day for the Jews. And God chose and ordained all the way back in eternity past that the church, when Jesus said, I will build my church the very first day the church would come into existence, would be the day of Pentecost. And this first great sermon that we're going to look at is a sermon that Peter preached on that incredible day. You know the background for the sermon. In verses 1 through 13 of Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began to speak in tongues. Okay, now let me tell you this, my intent is not to preach a message this morning on tongues. Okay, I don't think we need to do that, but let me say this. Let me, let me get this right out of the way, right up front. Um, the, the scripture says they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Remember I said we don't build doctrine on transition? Okay, so this idea of speaking in tongues is a transitional thing. God gave tongues to the apostles at the beginning of the church to establish the church, to show people that this is something new, but it is something from him. Okay, and, and here's another thing about this idea of speaking in tongues. When, when it says they spoke in tongues, they didn't speak in gibberish. Okay, they spoke in what is an established language. It was known languages at the time. You, you have to understand the context of this idea of speaking in tongues. Earlier in Acts chapter 2, it tells us that people came from all over the area, from different, different geographical regions that spoke different languages. Okay, And because God wanted everybody to hear the truth of Jesus Christ, he gave the disciples, the apostles, the ability to speak in those languages. They'd not, they'd not studied those languages. They didn't go to language school to learn how to speak them. They opened their mouths and unbeknownst to them, they were speaking in a different language that God had, the Holy Spirit had empowered them to speak in. I don't think that they ever spoke in those languages again unless there was a need for that. Okay, so it wasn't like they spoke that language then from ever, forevermore after that. It was a gift from the Holy Spirit. It was proof from God the Father that, hey, I'm doing something new, and this is authentication of that new thing that I am doing that these men can speak, and you can hear it in your own language. And as we develop our sermon this morning, we'll see that that's actually the case. Let me read a quote from you from the Nelson Study Bible. It says this, The word translated tongues here is the normal Greek word for known languages. 
In other words, it's the Greek word glossalia, okay, which means an established language. Speaking in tongues, the quote goes on to say, or diverse languages underscored the universal outreach of the church. These witnesses were speaking foreign dialects to the people who had gathered for Pentecost from other nations. Okay, It is not something mystical, it is not something spooky, it is not something unknown, it's not something that was newly developed on that day. It was established languages from the regions around the area. It is from this miraculous feat that Peter takes the cue for his message. Peter is now going to speak, also being led by the Holy Spirit, he's going to preach a message that... Is probably one of the greatest evangelistic messages ever preached. Thousands of people came to know Christ as their Savior as a result of this, of this message. So as these folks were speaking about the mighty acts of God, especially the works of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, many were amazed that these Galileans could speak the foreign languages with such clarity. Remember, most of the apostles were simple men. Fishermen, tax collectors, and people that hadn't gone on to get some kind of highfalutin degree. They were simple individuals who God called to change the world. And so they, when they spoke in these other languages, people were like, how are these guys doing that? They, they don't know these languages. They, they're not smart enough to know those languages. Well, can I tell you something? The number of languages that people speak don't really determine how smart or they are or aren't. One thing that amazed us when we lived in South Africa is that most people that lived in South Africa spoke at least two, if not three, languages. I remember going to my doctor's office and, and he... Um, was a, he, he actually took phone calls from his patients, okay? So he, he, he did some different things, he did like acupuncture and things like that. And so while he's treating you with acupuncture, you're laying on his little, little cot there, and he's actually on the phone talking to other people, other patients. And so he's having a conversation one day, and he starts talking to this patient in English. And the next thing you know, he's talking to him in Afrikaans. And then he switches back to English and back to Afrikaans. And so when he was all done, I said, hey, I wasn't necessarily listening, but I noticed that you switched from English to Afrikaans without even skipping a beat, not even thinking about it. He said, I did? I said, yeah. He says, oh, I didn't, I didn't even realize it. Um, and so he, he, was, uh, he could speak English, he could speak Afrikaans, and he probably spoke a couple tribal languages as well. So it was amazing to hear him do that. Me, an American, I struggled. I mean, we didn't even attempt to really learn Afrikaans. I mean, I could pick up some of the phrases, like when somebody served us a nice meal, I was, dit smach lekker. This baya, baya chut manier, or macy miss. So you, you could pick up those phrases, and, and the longer we lived there, we could kind of understand some of it, just enough to get us into trouble. Um, we had another friend who was a missionary who actually opened the field of South Africa for us. I won't tell you his name, but he tried to dabble in Afrikaans more often than we did. Um, and he'd been there for, I think, like 20 years. Okay, And then he just, you know, God called him from the field. But they had a farewell for him in one of our other fellowshipping sister churches. And so they invited him to speak. And he spoke in the morning, and then he was going to speak in the evening. So he, he was invited to come back after a nice meal. Uh, and he 
made this comment, and if our, so we have some South African friends, they're going to laugh as they listen. Um, he called, he said, thank you, you lecker-froes and lecker-mons for all the, the, the good things that you've done for us today. Now, the word lecker means nice or good, okay? And the word mons means men, froes means women. But when you combine lecker-froes and lecker-mons in that kind of a phrase, he said, thank you, all you homosexual people, for what you have done for us today. Yeah, and they all did the same thing. They all laughed, okay? So when, when, when these guys spoke in those tongues and those foreign languages, they didn't make those faux pas. They didn't make those mistakes. God gave them the ability to speak completely, accurately, 100%, so the people could hear and understand what was being said. Why? Because the message was life-changing, it was changing not just for the here and now, but eternal results. So these men and women who came to celebrate Pentecost heard a message about Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he died on the cross, that he paid the penalty for your sins, that God raised him from the dead, and if you accept and believe Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you can have everlasting life. There is no more important message than that to preach. That's the message that Peter and the apostles were speaking on that day. As we look, though, after they were able to share the gospel with these individuals in these foreign languages, Peter began to preach a message. And we look at Peter's sermon, and it breaks down like this. Excuse me, it breaks down like this. There are three points. Of course there's three points. Every good sermon has three points, right? Okay, so Peter had three points to his sermon. The first point is the explanation of what God is doing. The explanation of what God is doing. And then there's an exclamation of what God has done. Okay, and that's the gospel message. And then the third point of Peter's message was the exercising of the facts. I don't think he had it alliterated quite like that, but that's okay. Um, So as we move on this morning, let's ask first God to bless our time together in his word. We're not going to have necessarily a responsive reading um, because it's a larger piece of scripture. And we'll read the, the passage kind of as we go along through it. All right, but let's ask God to bless our time together in his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and we are so thankful and so grateful for the privilege of being here today. We know, Father, that you brought us here. You appointed that we would be here on this day, at this time, so that we could worship you together. We've worshipped you in song, and that's been great. And now, Father, we're continuing our worship of you as we listen and we study together a passage of Scripture It's a sermon that you uh, impressed upon Peter's heart, and now we're going to preach the message as well, and we trust that you will use it in our lives to encourage us to be faithful witnesses also of the things that you have accomplished through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for each one who's here. Bless our time together in the Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we get started, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21, we see here the explanation of what God is doing. Starting with verse 41, Peter says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. 
And it shall come to pass, Joel the prophet said, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall see dreams. And on my, and my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter is going back to the book of Joel and he's quoting from the prophet there to explain what is going on. You can imagine the confusion and the, the just the uncertainty of the day. Uh, some of these apostles were known by people in the area and they're like how are these guys do what are they doing we don't understand they're not talking their language they're talking some other language and so they began to accuse them of being drunk of being full of new wine well peter sets the record straight he says these men are not drunk as you suppose you know Many times Satan will try to explain away God's incredible working as something common or, in this case, something sinful. From a logical perspective, the accusation of drunkenness doesn't even make sense because these men spoke a known language with perfection. I mean, people that are drunk, they can't even speak their own language without slurring their words. So how in the world can these guys speak a, a, a language that is not common to them, new to them, with perfection if they're drunk? It's the truth about Satan's workings. Satan, the things that he does, often don't make sense. Most of the time, they don't make sense. He has to lie about them and build them up in a way that is not true and not accurate. So here's the case with these apostles. They're speaking this language, these languages to perfection, and people are accusing them of being drunk. There was no stuttering. There was no slurring of their speech. But rather, there was a clear communication of the mighty works of God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And it's only the third hour of the day, 9 o'clock in the morning. Not only is this a bit early to be drunk, especially since these men were not drunkards, but these men were participating in a Jewish feast and celebration, which you know what that means? They couldn't drink wine that would make you intoxicated. Why? Because there was yeast in it. They couldn't break the law if they're celebrating a feast of the law. Those who were active in this celebration, they couldn't eat or drink anything actually until mid-morning. At the earliest, 10 o'clock in the morning, possibly not till afternoon o'clock, noon. So why would they be accused of being drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning? The accusations are not, they're, they're not valid. They're unfounded. And Peter explains, hey, this is God doing a work here. This is not something that man has cooked up. He goes on to say, not only was it a logical explanation, but he also tells them that this was predicted a long time ago. This was predicted long ago. In fact, it was predicted in the book of Joel. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Let's take a few moments to look at what Peter is saying here. In, in this explanation this, that it was long ago, he says, it shall be in the last days. The last days. The last days in scripture is a reference to that time period just prior to the return of Christ. But you know what? It includes the whole time period from, 
from when Christ ascended into glory to when Christ will come back. Those are the last days. Okay, it, it, This might help you understand why in the New Testament some of the writers would often speak about the last days. And we ask ourselves the question, last days, how long is the last days go for? Because they, they wrote this a long time ago. Well, yeah, because the last days is a long time period. It's not a specific time period. It's, it's, a, it's a generalization of time from when Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I will come back to receive you to myself. That's the period of time that the last days talk about. You and I can identify with the same feeling because indeed we are in the last days. We believe that wholeheartedly. We believe that 100% that we are living in the last days. And as I said, the Bible never tells us how long the last days will last. But be assured that we are in the last days. We are in the time period just before Jesus will return. And, and know this, that Jesus has not returned yet. Okay? He left in Acts chapter 2. Remember when he was ascended into heaven and the angels came down and said, You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing into heaven? I think they were standing there kind of with their mouths hanging open saying, What's going on? And the angel came and said, don't worry, he's going, but he's going to do what he said he would do, prepare a place for you, and then he's going to come back at the right time, at the Father's appointed time, when the Father says, Jesus, today's your wedding day, go get your bride. Oh man, what a day that's going to be. He's going to come, he's going to descend to the clouds of the air, just like he went up in the clouds. He's going to descend to the clouds, and he's going to catch us up, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we are going to rise, and we're going to meet him in the air, and then he's going to take us home. That's very much the picture of a Jewish wedding ceremony. The, bride, or the groom comes from his home most of the way to where the bride would live, but not all the way to the bride's house, to the outskirts. And the, they say, hey, the, the groom is here, and the bride has already been making herself ready for this amazing event. And the bride goes out to meet the groom, and the groom does what? Takes her back home to his home, where they begin their life together. Jesus is coming from his home in heaven. He's taking, he's descending to the clouds, at the outskirts, if you will. And then he will catch us up, the bride of Christ, and take us home where we will begin eternity with him for, oh man. What, what a, we can't even imagine or fathom what eternity is going to be like. But we're going to spend it with our Savior, Jesus Christ. He hasn't come back yet. I can promise you that. Even though there are preachers on the internet and preachers on TV that tell you he has come back. No. And we're warned about that in Scripture. There's, gonna, there's going to be those people who say, Jesus is here. Go meet him. No, he's not here. He's not here because we're still here. Okay? That's a big clue. If we're still here, he's not here. When he takes us home to, to, to be with him, there's going to be that time in heaven where we have the judgment seat of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And down here on earth, they're going through that seven-year tribulation period. And hallelujah that we're not here for that. This also isn't a message about what's going to happen during that period. It's, just a, it's what Peter is telling us about. He says, it's the last days. And in the last days, Peter wants us to understand and know that this is something that is a fulfillment of the prophecy of the prophet Joel. These men are not drunk, as the world would suggest, but they are actually being servants and obedient to God. Satan will often try to confuse the truth. He doesn't want you to know the truth. He wants you to believe a lie. 
Peter goes on to say in his sermon, he says, Joel told us, the prophet Joel said, I will pour out my spirit. God says, I will pour out my spirit on my people. When Jesus comforted his disciples, do you remember what he said? He promised to do what? Send his Holy Spirit. He told the disciples just before he ascended, he says, you guys need to stay here in Jerusalem. Tarry here. Wait here in Jerusalem until what? Until I send my spirit. Remember, he also said to them, I have to go back to glory. I have to return to heaven because if I don't, I can't send the Spirit. The Spirit is imperative for the work of building the church of Jesus Christ. So Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to send my Spirit in between to help you because they were distraught. What are we going to do if Jesus goes away? How are we going to do what he wants us to do? In John chapter 16, verses 7 through 9, we read this. Nevertheless, I, Jesus says, tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. That's the Holy Spirit. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they did not believe in me. Jesus returned to heaven so he could send the comforter so the comforter could convict people of sin and bring them into a right relationship with the Father. Over in Acts chapter 1, Jesus instructed them to wait in Jerusalem. I already mentioned that, but here's the, here's the text. It says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them, commanded them, didn't suggest to them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus says, wait here, I'm going back to heaven, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, he's going to fill you with himself, and he's going to use you in the ministry for my honor and for my glory. This is coming to pass. When Peter is preaching this message, he's realizing that this is of God. This is the fulfillment. Can you imagine how exciting that had to be for Peter and the apostles as they are filled with the Holy Spirit? Hey, this is what Jesus told us was going to happen. Aren't you excited when you're studying scripture and you understand God made a promise to you and that promise comes true? You see it in your very life. Woo, hallelujah. How exciting that is. How great that is to be actively seeing God fulfill his work in your life. Now, Peter goes on and he gives us some more of the prophecy from the book of Joel. The rest of this prophecy is still waiting to be fulfilled at a latter time in the last days. I like what the Believer's Bible Commentary says. It says this, The final fulfillment of prophecy will take place at the end of the tribulation period. Prior to the glorious return of Christ, there will be wonders in the heavens and signs on earth. Go ahead and read Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 and 30. All of Matthew chapter 24 has often been misinterpreted by people down through the ages. They want to tell you, oh, that's already happened. No, it hasn't. Or it's going to happen after the rapture. No, it's not going to happen. It's not leading up to the rapture. You know, in that passage it says, uh, so, so when, when Jesus comes back, it's going to be like the days of Noah. Uh, and, and people will say, okay, so the, 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 the rapture is going to take place. That's talking about the rapture. No, because in the days of Noah, who, lay, who stayed on the earth? Who remained on the earth? Noah and his family. What did God say about Noah and his family? They were the righteous ones. Matthew chapter 24 is talking about the time prior to the return of Christ to the earth. 
So when Jesus comes back, who's, who's going to stay? Who's going to be alive to fill the millennial kingdom? The righteous people, the people who have believed in Jesus. Not us, because we've already been taken away, but those who are saved during the tribulation period. They are left to populate the millennial kingdom. All the unrighteous are taken away into judgment, just like it was, surprisingly how Jesus said, in the days of Noah. Okay? It's not hard to understand that. Don't, and I remember growing up in the 70s when we watched The Thief in the Night and The Distant Thunder. Those were fun movies and Bill Gaither's song, The King is Coming. We, we like to sing it. We like to listen to it. But the eschatology is all messed up in those things. We have to look at God's word and understand it from the perspective at which it was written. When Matthew wrote to the, his gospel, Matthew, who was he writing to? The Jewish people. That's what they understood. Jesus is coming back to set up his kingdom. When will these things happen? When Jesus returns to the earth for the millennial kingdom. That's just prior to that, according to Joel and according to Peter. That's when those signs and wonders are going to take place on the earth. So Peter is telling us this is predicted long ago. But he says, make no mistake, I want you to understand something. I want you to understand that the life giver is the same. The one who gives eternal life, the one who brings you into a right relationship with the Father, is the same. It's been the same since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, all the way through the Hebrew Scriptures, right up until the Gospels, where we, where we hear and learn about this life giver. And then, as we're now in the book of Acts, and we're transitioning, Jesus, the Messiah, is the one who gives life. People will often ask me, Pastor, uh, how are people saved in different ages or different dispensations? The answer is the same in every age. The answer is the same. How are people saved? People saved in the Old Testament were saved by looking forward to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. People saved in the Gospels were saved by saying and, and agreeing and acknowledging that Jesus is that Messiah. People that were saved in the New Testament, people that are saved today, are saved by looking at Jesus Christ, what he accomplished on the cross of Calvary, believing that, accepting that, and trusting him as your personal Savior. The object of salvation has never changed throughout time. It's always been the same. It's always been Jesus. So Peter is preaching to them, and he's telling them, listen, whoever, whoever is, is looking for a relationship with God must find it through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Acts chapter 4 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. We can only be saved through the name of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're trusting in something else to get you to heaven, you're trusting in the wrong thing. The only thing that gets you to heaven is Jesus Christ. And a personal relationship with him through believing his work on the cross of Calvary, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Remember what Paul says over in Romans chapter 10, verse 13? Whoever calls on what? The name of the Lord will be saved. He's talking about the church age. He's writing to Roman people in the city of Rome, telling them how to be saved, telling the Christians that were in Rome what you need to tell other people in order to be a good testimony, a good witness for the cause of Christ. If people will call upon the name of the Lord, it's a guarantee they will be saved. Okay, so now we have to ask this question, what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? William McDonald's puts it this way, he says, 
The name of the Lord is an expression that includes all that the Lord is. Thus, to call on his name is to call on himself as the true object of faith and as the only way of salvation. Jesus is the only way. No matter what age, no matter what dispensation a person is saved, they can only be saved by calling on the name of the Lord for salvation, by acknowledging that he is the only means to salvation. It's safe to say that the object of salvation has always been Jesus the Messiah. The Jewish people today, they don't believe that. And unless they confess and repent and trust that revelation from God, they will not be saved. Now, it doesn't matter what nationality you are, whether you're Jew or Gentile, what country you come in, what, 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 anything else about it doesn't matter. But if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Savior of mankind, he's the door, as he said in John, I am the door, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. If you believe that, then you have access to the Father. It's the only way to gain that access. Well, let's move on, verses 22 through 35. We see the exclamation of what God has done. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 35. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Now, these are going to be, you might call these fighting words, okay? These words that, that Peter's about to express are not going to win him friends and fans and, and people that are going to say, oh, wow, man, Peter's a great guy. Hear this. Okay, listen to what I'm telling you. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to which by mir- to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Him, Jesus being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you you have taken and you have by lawless hands crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosened the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, and he is at my right hand, and I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you have not, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption." You have made known to me the ways of life and will make me full of your joy and your peace. That was a quote from the Psalms. He goes on to say in his preaching, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you. Now when you say that, you often are looking for people to indulge you, to give you, you listen, what I'm going to say may not be the nicest thing. You might not want to listen to it, but let me say it anyway. Allow me to speak freely to you, he says. The patriarch David, that he was both dead and buried in his tomb, is with us to the day, to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing what God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father and the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear." 
For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that Christ has made this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Wow. That's some heavy stuff to hear if you were the ones who were in the crowd saying, Crucify him! We don't want him. We want Barabbas. You didn't want to hear those words from Peter. Why? Because they're convicting words. They're words that say, hey, I'm guilty of what I did. It's my fault that Jesus was hung on a cross. Not really, because Peter makes it clear uh, when he starts off that God determined that Jesus would pay for our sins, pay the penalty. In verse 22, it says, God attested to the works of Christ. I love the way Peter words it there when he says that this is all of God. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you. What does that word attest means? Well, it means to declare. It means to show. It means to prove what kind of person someone is. To prove by argument. To, to demonstrate this is actually what happened. God the Father testified of his son Jesus by the miracles that he did and the things that he said. That this is not just any ordinary man. This is indeed my son. This is the one you've been waiting for, longing for, hoping for. And the things that he does and the things that he says prove that. Remember when he was preaching in the synagogues and people said, man, he, he preaches with authority. He, he preaches like nobody else we've ever heard. Why? Because he's, he's the author of what he's preaching. The words came from him. Peter says, God the Father proved the kind of person his son Jesus is by the miracles and the wonders and the signs that he did. There could be no doubt in who Jesus was. Nobody else could do those things that Jesus did. So God attested to the works of Christ. God also arranged that Christ would be nailed to a cross in verse 23. God planned that. He determined it in the past, in eternity past, by the determined purpose of God, by the very decree that God made. A decree is something that has been appointed to happen, to divinely ordain or to decide that something is going to take place, and in God's case, to be able to make it happen. God didn't only say this was going to happen, He made it happen. And what was it that He made happen? He made his son nailed to the cross. What does Paul say in Philippians chapter 2? That God made Jesus a little lower than the angels so that he could take our sins upon himself on the cross. That he would die a death that was reserved for the worst of all criminals. Jesus took that spot on the cross for you and for me. It was determined by the foreknowledge of God. Now, uh, we think about this idea of foreknowledge. I don't know. I mean, I know that I'm getting older. Um, and I was growing up. I grew up in the 80s. And, and there's this guy by the name of Michael J. Fox. You know who he is, right? Um, you know where he got his big debut, right? Where he, made, he, got, he became famous because he was an actor on the show Family Ties. 
If you were growing up in the 80s, you very seldom missed the show Family Ties. Because that's, you know, you just watched it. Because he was so funny and it was such a, a good show. And it was clean, it was wholesome. You, you, you know, you, so you watched Family Ties. I remember an episode where Alex, Michael J. Fox, his parents gave him a radio that could pick up um, news broadcasts from England. And, you know, Alex was kind of a geek. He, he wasn't necessarily the coolest guy in school. Okay? His sister, Mallory, was uh, embarrassed many times by what Alex would do. So Alex was so excited about getting this radio. You know why? Because he could get the stock reports from England before he thought anybody else could get them. And so he could, add a t as a teenager, make his investments, make his adjustments uh, you know, 12 hours ahead. And he'd be ahead of the game making these investments. He was so excited. He, had, he thought he had this idea of knowing something ahead of time. That's not what foreknowledge is. Okay, That's just knowing things before, the, before time, before most other people might know them. Here's what foreknowledge is. Foreknowledge is much more than that. The Greek term indicates knowledge beforehand, either of things that are seen or things that are intended or arranged. This means that the plan for Jesus to die on the cross as the payment for the sins of mankind was not an afterthought. It wasn't something that after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God said, uh-oh, now what am I going to do? God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin in the garden, and God knew what he was going to do to bring about a solution to that sin problem. It was part of his eternal plan. It was a plan that was initiated in eternity. That's what foreknowledge is. You're, you're taking all the steps necessary, and you're making it happen just the way you said it would happen. Jesus dying on the cross, the, the Jews say, well, we didn't accept him because that's not what he was supposed to do when he came. Well, yes, it was. You just missed it. The, you know, Isaiah talks an awful lot about a suffering Savior before he talks about a conquering king. The first advent of Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament in books like Isaiah and, and, and Micah and a lot of other books where the suffering servant was going to come first. Even the Psalms talk about it. They didn't want the suffering servant when, when Jesus came. They were looking for somebody who to drive Rome out and get rid of the, 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 the oppression of Rome. They were looking for the conquering king to come riding in on his white horse and be the, the hero who would deliver them from Rome. But that wasn't part of God's plan. God's, at that time, God's plan was first for Jesus to come as the suffering servant to secure salvation for all of mankind, those who would believe and accept and trust, those that he called into a relationship with himself. So God arranged that Christ would be nailed to a tree. And then we see a great achievement from God. God's great achievement is seen in verses 24 and 32 of Acts chapter 2. This, this point, this achievement is so important that Peter said it twice in, in a very short period of time. Once in verse 24, once in verse 32. In verse 24, Peter says, It was impossible for death to keep him captive. In other words, Jesus literally died on the cross of Calvary. We're going to celebrate it on uh, this coming season of Good Friday, Easter, and, and those things. God, Jesus, died on the cross. There's no doubt about it. When they 
thrust that sword into his side, and first the blood came out, and then water came out, indicating what? That there was no blood left in his body to come out. Can you live without blood? No. Jesus was dead. Make no mistake, when those Roman guards went up to examine his body and were about to break his legs, they looked at him and said, ah, he's not breathing. They, they, they made sure that he was dead because to take him down off the cross without him being dead, they would have become dead by their bosses. Okay? They made sure beyond any reasonable doubt that Jesus was dead. And instead of breaking his bones because, remember it says, he gave up his spirit. He died. He chose the point in time when he would die, stop living uh, his life. He died. The Roman soldiers confirmed that with the spear in his side. Jesus died on the cross. Make no mistake about it. The death was imperative his shedding of blood was necessary because Jesus, because the Old Testament scriptures tell us without the shedding of blood, there cannot be forgiveness of sin. We would still be trapped in our sins if Jesus didn't shed his blood for us. But death could not keep him captive. Why? Because God's character demanded that Christ be risen from the dead. Jesus, the sinless one, died for sinners, and in his death, he accomplished the demands of a righteous, holy God. And if his death was truly acceptable in the Father's eyes, then the Father had to raise Jesus from the dead. And there's Old Testament prophecies required that Jesus be raised from the dead. If he's not raised from the dead, then he's not who he said he was. And the Pharisees were right all along. But they were not right. Because God raised him from the dead. Psalm 16, which Peter quotes here, David had written prophetically concerning the Lord's death, but not just his death, also his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. David wrote it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus hung on the cross. That's truth. That's confirmation. That's God attesting to who his son is. That's God saying, this is my... Remember what he said at the baptism and at the, at the transfiguration? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Do what he tells you to do. Jesus now is hanging on a cross. He's buried. He's now risen from the dead. He's ascended back into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of, throne of at the throne of God. Can you hear God saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Believe him. Accept him because he's the only way. That's God saying, yes, Jesus is exactly who he says he was. In verse 32, Peter reminds his listeners that he and the others, those who had been accused of drunkenness, were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is probably a, came as a bit of a surprise to his listeners, especially those that had believed the official report. You know what the official report was? That his disciples came and stole away his body. But now the record's getting set straight. Peter's saying, that ain't the truth. Here's the truth. Jesus rose from the dead. God the Father accepted his sacrifice and brought him back to life. 
And then he talks about Jesus' ascension. And when he talks about Jesus' ascension, he's telling us that God is exalting him, his son, to God the Father's own right hand in verse 33. God says, well done, my son, come and sit down where you belong. At my right hand. When Jesus left heaven and took on flesh, it was only for a season. It was for a period of time. When his work on earth was finished, he would return to his father's side. If we continue on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, verse 31, it states there that God has exalted Jesus to his right hand, where he, Jesus, grants repentance and forgiveness. Once he returned to his rightful place, the Holy Spirit could then be poured out like Jesus promised. Jesus ascended into heaven and he took back, took back his seat at the Father's right hand. Well, we're going to close with this idea in verses 36 and 38. The exercising the facts of God's work. Exercising those facts. Re- realizing these things are not just made up fables. These are facts that God wants us to live our lives by. Therefore, because all these things that Peter has pointed out, there's only one conclusion that can be drawn. Well, actually, I'm going to give you two, but they go together. The first one is that God is always in control. Peter said this, Let all Israel know for certain that the same Jesus whom you, and he's talking to the people that were in his audience, in his congregation at that time, who were listening to him, who had gathered at Pentecost, the Jewish people, he says, that you crucified. And guess what? We were part of that. You crucified. God, the Father, has made Lord and Christ. Doesn't matter what you say, because that word Christ is Messiah. You say he's not the Messiah. God, the Father, has made him the Messiah. He is the Messiah. These are not new titles. Remember what the angels told the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verse 11? They said, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is who? Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. This message that Peter is preaching was in direct opposition to the religious leaders of the day. What they were teaching on Saturday in the synagogues was directly opposite of what Peter is preaching here on the day of Pentecost. Let me read John chapter 14, uh, a couple of passages of scripture for for you there. In verses 14 and 16, it says this, Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, Pilate, behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered. These are the religious leaders. These are the people who are supposed to know the scriptures. Their answer to Pilate when he said, Shall I crucify your king? Their answer was, We have no king but Caesar. Wow. What an awful statement. What a, what a terrible thing for the people who have, should have known to make. Then he, Pilate, delivered... Jesus to them, the high priest, to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. In verses 19 through 22, it says, Now Pilate wrote, and I love this, a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That's what Pilate wrote 
on the cross to be hung above his head. That was actually the accusation that got him on the cross. Okay? Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin so everybody could read it and nobody would misunderstand it. It was written in those three different languages. Therefore the chief priests of, Jesus, of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said I am king of the Jews. In other words, they wanted the accusation to, be, to say, This is the man who said, who claimed he was the king of the Jews. Pilate's response, a response from God, not really from Pilate. Pilate said, I have written what I have written, and it won't be changed. So throughout the course of all history, the accusation that put Jesus on the cross, he's the king of the Jews. He's the Messiah. He's the one that God sent to save mankind from their sin. You know what the beauty of Peter's point is here? It doesn't matter what men say or think about our God or about Jesus. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. God has made him Lord and Christ. It makes me think again of Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, where it says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and the things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, King of the Jews, glory to God, glory to our Heavenly Father. So there's a, 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 a fact that God is always in control. And then we're going to close with the call for change. Every good sermon has to call for people to put into action what they've learned. It says here, and Peter said to them, those who are listening to him preach this message, Peter says to them, repent. And let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. What's that word repent mean? It means change. Oh, pastor, not change. You know me and change. We're not talking about the stuff that hangs around in your pocket for three or four days before you throw it in a bowl. We're talking about change, doing something differently. Repent. Stop living the way you're living now and start living the way God wants you to live. Forsake the old way. Forsake the way that didn't get you to God and accept the way that gets you to God by believing in Jesus Christ. Peter did not want, wait for them to make a decision. He pressed them to respond to the truth. Some of them needed to repent. Some of them needed to come to know Jesus as their Savior. They needed to respond to the truth. Perhaps there were some, perhaps there's some here today, that that's where you are. You need to repent. You've never trusted Christ as your Savior. You need to say, today's the day I want to have a new life in Christ. I want to come to know Jesus as my Savior. We can help you with that. Some, in Peter's message, needed to repent. Some needed to be baptized. There you go again, pastor, telling us that we need to be baptized. That's not me. I'm not telling you that. God is telling you that. 
Peter is telling you that. There's many of you in this room today that have said, I know Jesus as my Savior, but you've not yet been baptized. Can I tell you that you need to be baptized? Not me telling you that. God is telling you that. We've got a couple coming up. There's no reason for you not to say, Pastor, today you can say it. Pastor, I want to get baptized. Praise the Lord. We're working with Christine. She wants to get baptized. She's working through a booklet. We're going to help her get there. Brandon wants to be baptized. There's some other people who have in the past, and maybe, maybe, maybe. Stop being wishy-washy. Stop dragging your feet. Get baptized. Not because I'm telling you to do that, but it's because God says, if you want to be obedient to me, if you want me to use you in the work of the ministry of Jesus Christ, get baptized. Can I tell you something? I've never been that forceful about it. But it's not me. Peter is preaching a message to thousands of people who got saved. So he's saying, now that you've repented, now that you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to do the next step. And what is that next step? It's not teaching Sunday school. It's not coming to youth group. It's not going to recharge. It's it's getting baptized. And I don't care if you're 8 years old or you're 80 years old. Get baptized. And not be... Sprinkled with water. I'm sorry, but that's not the way. The Bible says if you're going to be baptized, you're going to identify with Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. You're going to be immersed in water. You're going to be raised up out of the water because it pictures the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So stop dragging your feet. Get in the tank when we have the full water and get baptized. You want to do that? You let me know. We'll get you ready for it. And if there's so many of you that want to get baptized, we have some deacons. We have some Sunday school teachers. They will work with you. They will help you know what you need to do so you can get baptized. If you want God to really use you in your life in this world, whether you're in school or whether you're at work, you need to be obedient. And the first step to that obedience is baptism. And I better close because I'm going to sound like I'm nagging if I don't. All right? The title of our message this morning in the bulletin is Pentecostal Preaching. And you might say, well, Pastor, you were kind of Pentecostal this morning. Well, hey, we're preaching God's word. We're preaching truth, and we need to be excited about the truth. Peter's message at Pentecostal, at Pentecost, was strictly a message from God's word about what people needed to do in response to God's word. We could use a little more Pentecostal preaching these days. And by that, I mean preaching that comes strictly from the word of God. But more than that, Wouldn't it be great if we had a biblical response to God's word? A response that would result in changed lives and the application of God's word. The response that we read in verse 42 should be our prayer, the prayer of our hearts this morning. That we would be obedient to God's word and follow the scriptures. Do what the scriptures tell us to do. Would you close your eyes this morning? 
And as we think about Peter's Pentecostal preaching, let us ask God if there's something that he wants us to do. Here's what the people that heard Peter's message did. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, says this, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. May we continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Or maybe, maybe we need to start applying the teaching of the apostles. And you know what that means. It means being obedient to every aspect of God's word as we read it and study it and the Holy Spirit brings it to conviction in our heart and in our lives. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you so much again for the truth of your word. Father, I don't want it to be my preaching, my excitement, my enthusiasm that brings people to respond. I want it to be your word that brings the response from the heart of individuals today. Whether that's for salvation or baptism or a commitment to serve you in some capacity. Father, we need to continue steadfastly and what the apostles taught. And that makes me think of Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, where Jesus gave that great commission, not just to the apostles, but to the disciples, to all of his followers. He said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's a command from you, not from any person, not from mom and dad, not from Sunday school teacher, not from the preacher. It's a command from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Baptize. And then teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And then there's that great word of encouragement. I am with you always to the end of the age. So whether we're trusting Christ as our Savior, or we're getting baptized, or we're growing and learning in the things of God, we have the promise of your protection for us. Father, help us to continue steadfastly in the teachings of the Word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.